I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Jennifer Kramer Miller, author of Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope. At 22, Jennifer Kramer Miller was thrilled with her new job, charming boyfriend, and Seattle apartment. Then she received a devastating autoimmune diagnosis, and suddenly, rather than planning for a bright future, she found herself soaking a hospital pillow with tears and grappling with words like progressive and incurable. Her chances of survival hinged upon the expertise of doctors, the generosity of strangers, and the benevolence of loved ones. Spanning two-plus decades, she explores loss and acceptance, moving forward with uncertainty and forging a path to joy. Four four kidney transplants later, she is here to shine a bright light on people helping people in difficult times with a story that will make you want to hug the humans you love. Her work is featured in Brevity Blog, The Sunlight Press, uh, the Emma Bomback Blog, The Kindness Blog, and The Star Tribune and Minnesota Physician. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Nice to have you on today. So much. I'm so delighted to be here with you today. I think I can add this also to your resume. You are the board chairman of the National Kidney Foundation. Yes, I'm in Minnesota, and I'm the board chair of our local chapter of the National Kidney Foundation here. Okay. So, and one other statistic, I, I guess. Uh, no, I'm not going to get into statistics. I want to know, 22 years old, new job, new boyfriend, apartment, and all of a sudden you're diagnosed with kidney disease or an autoimmune disease. How did, uh, the first question I guess is, what can you, what was your response when you heard that diagnosis? I mean, it such a young age. It was very shocking. I mean, like you said, I was 22. So I woke up one day and I felt puffy. My eyes were puffy and I didn't feel well. And so I, you know, did what you do. I went to the doctor, but I really thought that he was going to tell me something like maybe I had a virus or the flu, something that would have a quick fix. So what happened was he told me that he found protein in my urine and protein has no business being in urine. A healthy kidney will not leak protein into your urine. So I didn't know what that meant, of course, but he said it meant I had damaged kidneys and I'd need to have a biopsy to find out the cause and extent. And biopsy is still a scary word. You know, it's not a happy word, but at yeah. 22, the word biopsy was terrifying to me. It just, I thought it just meant cancer. So I was just numb. I didn't really know what was going to happen, but I did have the biopsy and I was in Seattle, like you said, but with this kind of scary diagnosis and needing a biopsy, I flew home to Minneapolis where my family was and got the biopsy in Minneapolis. And that's when I heard two words that I wish I would have never heard. And it was progressive and incurable. I have to ask you what happened. I just want to stop you there for a minute because uh, you know, you wake up one morning and you have puffy eyes and you go to the doctor and you get this diagnosis. But did you have any symptoms beforehand or it was just any kind, anything that would have led you to believe perhaps that maybe something was wrong, but you didn't attend to them? No, no, no. I was I was happy and healthy and normal and um, what I call normal. And I did have some headaches. I was having some headaches kind of shortly before the, the puffiness began. But this disease, which 
has a really long name. It's called focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, but FSGS for short. It uh, can just strike out of the blue. It's really, it's really a puzzling disease and not a good one to have. I was not lucky when I got that diagnosis. Is it genetic or is it uh, something that you acquire? It's not genetic. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, as if I could, what caused this. Like, I had all these theories that maybe I ate contaminated sushi or maybe the varnish on the floor in our new apartment caused it. I mean, I really went down kind of a rabbit hole of thinking I could somehow put my finger on where this came from. But I had a doctor finally tell me, you know, I don't think we're ever going to know what caused it. It's just one of those things that happens and we don't know why. And that was, you know, 30 some years ago and they still don't know why. It's an autoimmune factor that is in my blood that doesn't like kidneys and they haven't been able to isolate it and get rid of it. So they have to just manage it. So what now, maybe this is a statistic, but like, have they, you're talking about 30 years and it doesn't sound like it, as you say, not, not much progress has been made in terms of what causes it. Is that because there aren't a lot of people who suffer from it? So they don't pour money into the research or what? Yes, that's part of it. I mean, that's, it's, it's a rare kidney disease. So there, I mean, I think I read a statistic, maybe 40,000 people have it in, in the U S and I probably shouldn't say statistics when I'm not, I'd have to fact check myself on that, but let's, we can acknowledge it's a rare disease and they are studying it. Um, You know, I had talked to some doctors about that. Is it like they don't care because not as many people have that particular kidney disease, but no, it's really perplexed them. There have, you know, I remember my last transplant was 12 years ago and at the time, and 12 years, by the way, is fantastic for me. I'm really celebrating that number because it's my longest run that I've had with a kidney so far. But at the time that I got this kidney, there was a potential breakthrough. And my nephrologist was telling me about it. And he said, there could be some good things on the horizon. But that didn't, that didn't pan out. So it's still a very, very confusing disease for them to nail down. So Jennifer, okay, you've had four transplants, four kidney transplants. Uh, you, you read about yes. a lot that it's difficult for it to just to get one kidney transplant. You know, people wait years for a transplant. So what, can we talk about that? Like how you were able to have sure. four, ki- yeah, four kidney transplants and maybe start with the first one. Yes. Four is a lot. Yes, we can all acknowledge that. But my first one, um, like I said, I got this diagnosis at 22 I got my first transplant at 25. So I had been on dialysis, which if your listeners are not familiar with dialysis, it's an artificial kidney machine. So when your kidneys fail, there's only two ways to survive. One is to be on dialysis and the other is to get a transplant. So I waited on dialysis for a year and eight months and I was young and, you know, I, I got that kidney, um, Age makes a difference. You know, there are certain criteria that go into matching people with kidneys, and it's a very fair system, but there's a criteria of ranking. And for some reason, after a year and eight months, I was the one that matched a kidney that was available. And that kidney, I didn't know. Well, what happened is I got the kidney, and I thought I was going to go back to my life in Seattle and pick up where I left off. 
And it was really supposed to be the train ride back to my future. But three days after I got the kidney, my FSGS recurred. And that was really very devastating because I had put all my hopes in this transplant. And then it really, the train wasn't going to leave the station. So my doctor said, we're going to manage it with medications and hope for the best. And I didn't know how long it would last. I had no idea. But he told me something that's really guided me throughout these years is that a transplant is a vacation from dialysis because I was going to need one or the other for the rest of my life. And I really appreciated that expectation management because I set out to cherish every day I had with that kidney. And it was five years and three months. And then it um, failed and I was back on dialysis for only five months this time. And I got another call for another kidney. And this, this first transplant was 1990. So this is back when the list wasn't quite as long as it is today. The um, incidence of kidney disease has really picked up. So today we've got about 100,000 people waiting on a kidney transplant list for a kidney. And last year, 2022, was a record year of kidney transplants at about just over 25,000. But you can see the discrepancy there. I mean, we're celebrating the 25,000, but that leaves a quite a shortage if you have a list of 100,000. So the waits can be very long. But so, so to kind of answer your question, how I got so many, well, with for my third transplant, which was 2002, my mom was able to donate her kidney to me. And this felt so miraculous because for my first transplant, she didn't have enough mat- matching antigens. And that criteria had changed from 1990 to 2002, and she was a suitable match. And this points out, you know, a helpful thing in the process. If you have a living donor that's willing to donate to you, it saves other people to have kidneys from the list. You kind of preempt dialysis and you have better outcomes. How do you live, as I'm listening to your story, and I I said this in the beginning, I think in the intro, how do you move forward? Because you did and you do with all of this uncertainty, uncertainty, like the transplant and the yeah. dialysis and not knowing how just emotionally were you able or are you able to create this kind of emotional balance? Yeah, well, that's been kind of the focus of what I've had to do since I was so young, and it was really hard when I was young. I felt like I was ripped from my rightful place in life. And after that first transplant, when I did have recurrence, I realized there was a point in time when I realized I have to make a choice here. I can live with despair over this incurable situation, or I can choose hope. And I was really inspired by Joseph Campbell and a very famous quote that he has that we must be willing to let go of the life we have planned so as to lead the life that is waiting for us. And I think one of the big turning points for me was um, I was on dialysis. I was with a lot of other patients who were in their 70s and 80s. And we had kind of a nice camaraderie. It felt like all of a sudden a medical version of Cheers. I would go there and everybody knows your name. And we actually had a good time together under bad circumstances. But There was a very young technician there. His name was Tom. He was in his 30s. He was the healthy one that helped all of us. One day I went in and 
I heard that he had suddenly died the night before from a brain aneurysm. And it was tragic. And I looked around the room and thought, how in the world did all of us who are on dialysis outlive Tom, who was healthy and young and strong and capable? And I realized at that moment, if I was alive, I had to just be alive. Like, it's pretty black and white. Either you're alive or you're not. And we could all be like Tom and suddenly be gone. And I realized at that moment, I was just going to live my life as long as I was alive and I was going to make the best of it. And it really shifted my perspective. I think so in I your book, you have in the beginning a, of your book uh, or some uh, one of the chapters, which struck me is uh, a, a proverb, the only thing that you can predict is the unpredictable, which kind of describes all yes. of what we're talking about, right? Yes. And it's, and I realized, especially when that happened to healthy Tom, we all live with uncertainty. We all do. Like some of us know it more than others. You know, when you have a chronic illness, uncertainty happens all the time, but we all live with it. It's just what it is to be alive. And so you know, I started to realize we always think about is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? And how are we going to, you know, what's our perspective? But then I realized, you know what, that's not even the right question. I think we should appreciate if we have a glass because the glass is life. And so I really just cherish the time that I have with the people that I have. And I felt at 22, like I had crossed a line and I was on the wrong side of life. But as I got older and lived through more life, I realized there is no line. We all toggle uncertainty and we need to manage it and harness hope and find joy. As you're describing uh, your experience, it seems to me that what you've been able to do in your own life would help you to be able to adjust and be resilient in the face of COVID and climate change, because all of those things are unpredictable. And many people have a lot of difficulty with it because our world has changed. But you've had this experience. Yeah. You know what it's like. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, during COVID, it was a really hard time for, you know, anyone that's immunosuppressed because, like my daughter said, every time she would hear things about COVID, like it's getting better, except for the immunosuppressed. She would call me and go, it's a real bummer being immunosuppressed, isn't it? And it was really hard because we, you know, when things eased up, it didn't feel like it eased up as much for, for some of us. But it was also partly things that I had been doing all along, like protecting myself, washing hands frequently, staying away from sick people, um, that was something that I was kind of used to. But yeah, it's I, I realize, you know, this too shall pass is something that I've gone through a lot of things. And I sometimes just remind myself, this might not always be like this. And I have, and I know that I've gotten through things before and I'll get through things again. You mentioned your daughter. So when did you have your daughter and did you, uh, I don't know if she is a biological daughter or adopted daughter or, and what's it like to go through a pregnancy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She is such a highlight of my life. I feel like she is such a miracle. She is my biological daughter. 
I got pregnant with her after my second transplant. And it's so amazing to me that not only did someone who checked a box at the DMV give me my more life, but they allowed me to create a life. So this gift of life goes on and on. And I got pregnant with her only seven months after my transplant, which was a little ahead of schedule. They don't really want you to get pregnant till a year after transplant, but I, I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have been. And I've since learned so much about fertility in women with kidney diseases, and it's very reduced. And I just, I heard, a, I went to a seminar the other day and I was listening to this really brilliant woman nephrologist talking about women's issues with kidney disease. And I had this sudden realization that the fact that I was able to have Liza and that she's here with us to just add so much joy to our little family of three is such a miracle. So yeah, it was, um, it was a difficult pregnancy towards the end. She was born premature and went to the NICU to get bigger. She was born four pounds, but she was the healthiest, cutest little bundle of four pounds I could ever have imagined. But the problem was I developed sepsis after I gave birth, which is a very horrible infection and it can kill people. And so I was in the ICU while she was in NICU. My poor husband was traveling back and forth between two hospitals, wondering if he was going to raise our daughter by himself. That was a low point, very low point. Um, But we both got better and we came home. And my husband, Dirk, said, we are so lucky to have one healthy child, but I'm never going to go through that again. That was so scary. And he quickly got a vasectomy and snip, our family of three was complete. So (laughs) snip, snip, three. (laughs) uh, Yeah, he knew he couldn't go through it again. But I have to mention that for my fourth transplant, my husband, Dirk, wanted to be my donor, and we were not a compatible match. I had 15 family and friends offer, and Dirk was determined to somehow make this happen. So he discovered the paired exchange program, and what that is is like a kidney swap. So if he was a willing donor for me but incompatible with me, we could go into a pool of people of willing donors that were incompatible. And what happened was an altruistic 25-year-old donor said he wanted to give his kidney to somebody, not direct it to anybody, just out of the goodness of his heart. And that kidney matched me. And then my husband's kidney went to another man in North Dakota. So that was another whole sense of miracles coming together. I just felt so steeped in gratitude by that point for what people do to help people. Just amazing. There's so much kindness. Yeah. And I'm thinking I had never heard of that. And I I wonder how many listeners or how many people know about that. I assume that's something or information that you educate people with in the National Kidney Foundation that. Yes. The National Kidney Foundation does a really good job. Um, Anybody who's looking for any information on kidney health or kidney diseases or living donation, transplantation, um, they have a really resource-rich website at kidney.org. Now, in terms of your book, uh, it's been said, I guess, by people who've written testimonials, there's a lot of humor in the book. And one would think, it seems like there would be nothing humorous about this. But (laughs) (laughs) 
but there, there is. There's there's tell a lot us. of humor yeah. in the book. Yeah. And that's so important to me. I just, I remember I had this kind of moment where things were not good. I was going through kidney failure and I went to a movie with my mom and my brother and it was a funny movie. I don't remember what it was, but I think it might've been fish called Wanda. I'm not sure. It was a long time ago uh, in the eighties, late eighties. And I remember laughing in the movie theater and thinking, you know, there's a lot going on for me right now, but I can still laugh. And what a joy that is. And my mom, who was such a champion with me through all these appointments in the very beginning, she always would make me laugh. We kind of could find the funny in situations. And it was so uplifting to know that no matter what was happening, there was a lot of humor that could surround us. And I've always hung on to that because when you're laughing, you're not sad. And it's a great, it's a great vacation from some of the uncertainty that we go through. Now, you've been talking about your husband, your mother, your daughter. You had all of this support. And also, it sounds like also from other family members and friends. What do you say to people who don't have that kind of support? Perhaps they are alone. Perhaps they don't have a husband or 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 a, a parent yeah. or anyone. Yeah. I would definitely encourage people to to find some place where you feel like you can get some um, understanding and help. And there are, you know, for so many things, there are support groups that you can find. I know for kidney patients through the National Kidney Foundation, there's a peer mentoring program, which I am a peer mentor. And I talk to other kidney patients and I understand what they're going through. And I have one particular mentee who tells me, I can't tell this to anyone else and they understand what I'm talking about. So I'm a big believer in finding people that, you know, if you don't have a husband in your home, you don't have a, a child to talk to, you really have to make an effort to reach out through support groups or like-minded people. Even Facebook has so many groups where people can find belonging in their particular circumstance. And I think it makes such a big difference because it's it's hard to go through these things alone. So we really need to find those people that can connect to us. So connection is key. You have to connect. Um, you have and, to connect. And, you know, at, when I was young, I thought, oh, I just, I felt so bad that I was dependent on my parents at the age of 22. I had been independent in Seattle with launching my life. And I felt a lot of guilt about that. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't in my rightful place anymore. But over time, you know, I was so focused on independence. And over time, I realized that mutual dependence is kind of a wonderful thing. Like the people in our lives, that's really the measure of health. For me, I had to kind of read, redefine what the measure of health is, because I'm always going to have this incurable disease. But to me, if I have people around me that I can connect to and people I feel like I belong with, that's, that's a healthy life. I think that's key because I think there is a huge stigma, particularly in our society, of not wanting to feel in control, not wanting to feel like you have mm -hmm. to depend on somebody. And so people sometimes hang back. They don't get the help they need because they're that even shame. 
that and especially yeah. at your age when you were first diagnosed in your 20s and 30s so i i, I would assume as you're saying that's a, that is a huge issue that one has to, yeah, to deal with yeah it's one i like when i was i remember when i was first diagnosed and very sick and i was on a ton of prednisone and i felt like i looked strange and it was all the side effects of that drug were horrible and I had a friend who called me and she said, I want to see you. And I said, well, I don't really look good right now. So why don't we just wait till some of the side effects wear off? And she would have nothing to do with that. She was like, I don't really care how you look. That's not why I want to see you. I just know you're going through something hard and I want to come over. And I, I so appreciated that she did that because I didn't know how much I needed her to do it. I just wanted to hide. And I think that that, like what you're saying, sometimes when people get an illness, they feel shame about it. And I don't know why we always attach shame to everything that happens to us, but we seem to do that. And um, there's a tendency to want to just hide till it goes away. And that's not really what friendship is about. Friendship isn't about, okay, I'll come see you again when you think you look better. She just wanted to support me. And so I learned and it was a hard lesson over time to let people love you. You know, if the, if people saying, I just want to support you and love you, we'll let them. That's a good um, thought, I guess. we have To end our interview, I could keep on going. Um, you have so much good information, but we want people to read the book. And the title of the book is Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope. And I've been talking to the author, Jennifer Kramer Miller, so much more in the book. Uh, so give us a website, websites to go to. Uh, yeah. More, yeah, more information yes. about your book and about the National Kidney Foundation as well. Yes, absolutely. So for the book, it is available so soon, August 15th, wherever books are sold. Um, you can go to incurable-optimist.com and see some good options there on some more information about me and how to buy the book. Um, it's going to be available in print, audio, and ebook, like I said, August 15th. And the National Kidney Foundation is such a wonderful organization that helps promote kidney health, prevention of kidney diseases, innovation in new technologies, um, support living donors. The work is really immense, and you can learn all about that work at kidney.org. Great. Thank you so much. Author Jennifer Kramer Miller. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much, Catherine. It was wonderful to talk to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 